We are continuing our study dealing with the doctrine of church discipline. And we have moved on to this fourth step, which is telling it to the church. We did not get to finish last Lord's Day, and so I want to come back and visit the end of this sermon because it's very important. We are told, (coughs) excuse me, in Matthew 18, (coughs) excuse me, verses 15 through 20. Here is the structure of church discipline, rightfully to be understood. Just give me a minute. I don't know why that's doing that. And here we read the basic principles behind the aspect of reconciliation within the church of Jesus Christ. Discipline is self-discipline, a person rightfully governing when they find sin in their life, seeking to root it out, to live and apply Christ and his righteousness to their life. And if that is not done, if one has been offended, he is to go to the offender and say, You have offended me. Then he moves on to getting two witnesses if he will not hear what he has to say. He will not receive it. He's become unwilling to alter his position. Then you go back with two witnesses, at least one or two, preferably two or three, because in the mouth of two or three witnesses in the Old Testament law was everything to be established. So you go back, that... They may be witnesses, but also before they are witnesses in a testimony that would come on forward to the next step, what we call the fourth step, telling it to the church, they are counselors. They're there to help mediate that problem that has arisen within the church. So let's look at what here is written in Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15. <clears throat> Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. You've reconciled. You've returned to the right fellowship that you're to have one another in Christ. But if he will not hear it, if he will not receive the word, and he will not repent, and he becomes unwilling to resolve the issue, take with you one or two 
or more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. We were there. We mediated. We heard the complaint. We heard the defense. And we have found that the offender would not repent. And as a result, we have come with him to the church to expand the discipline of the church. Why church discipline? I'll tell you why. Our churches are polluted with sin. Because it's sinners who are attending our churches. Yes, some of us are saved by grace, but that doesn't do away with all of the sin. It is easy for all of us to be trapped by sin in our life. We need discipline. We need self-discipline. We need corrective discipline when we have transgressed the law of God and offended someone. We need to have those people who come to help counsel to work with us. Perhaps even the counseling is a reference to the fact that something has taken place and they've assigned in the church a person to work with the problems that a certain person and or a family is having. But then he says, and if he refuses to hear them, talking about the church, and in particular, this is kind of a a bifold structure to it. Telling it to the church means the church is going to take an action. That action will be twofold. First, it will be confrontational and it will be required that that person or that people will come under the authority of the discipline of the church. And the first thing that happens is their membership will be suspended. They will not have the right to the Lord's table They will have no rights in voting because at this point there is nothing but turmoil and chaos in their lives. They are showing themselves unfit to be a part of the church and to help to keep the order as it ought to be helped and kept by all of its members. So you tell it to the church, and if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be like to you a heathen and a tax collector. Surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in the midst of them. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the privilege 
of coming today to hear thy word, sing praises to thy name, to always give consideration to the love and fellowship that we have for each other in Christ. We are a part of a great family. We proclaim our eyes to be open. We know the truth. And the truth sets us free. Free from what? Free from sin. Free from bondage. Let us realize from the moment we have entered into your kingdom. By thy grace that has been given to us in Christ. Through that shedding of blood. We have been under the discipline and authority of our Lord. Through his word, the indwelling of his spirit, through the teaching, and through the fellowship that we have, both one with another and under the authority of the church and its structure by which the kingdom of God is expanded. Help us, O God, to always be in a willingness to reconcile. It's so easy to sin, but it is so hard to often see repentance. Sin comes naturally Repentance requires a very powerful work of the Spirit. And too often we are wanting to fight it. Pride gets in our way. We want to be religious, but we don't want to be Christian. It is a problem of our generation. Churches full of sinners claiming to be saved by grace who will not live by your law of morality. And somehow they believe in the midst of all this foolish theology and confusion, they're going to get in. Somehow they've collected fire insurance but the problem is they bought a lie and the paper that the insurance is written on isn't worth a dime help us oh God never to fall prey to that let us be students in love with your word, let's be the disciples who walk in that word every day of our life. For we ask it in your most precious name. Now, O oh Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive that which your word and spirit would teach us in Christ's name. Amen. We began five Sundays ago talking about Church discipline. We looked at the doctrinal position of the confession 
and what church censorship is all about. But then we began the process of Matthew 18, and we're proceeding. We said that this church discipline comes from an etymological root in which the very concept means learning, education, teaching, tutoring, instructing. That's what discipline is. It really is the idea of becoming a disciple. Not a student. We are not called to be students of Christianity in the sense that we are simply called to somehow become familiar with what is being taught in Christianity, but we are encouraged as those who proclaim Christ that we receive that, we embrace that, we assent to it, we embrace and we rest or trust upon that calling of God by faith to himself, by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Thus, we have this positive and negative side of things that we have to deal with. On the positive, we're always trying to reconcile. On the negative, we have to sometimes discipline even when we really don't want to. It's not easy. But you have to do it. God didn't give you an option. You have to make things right in his kingdom. So we began this study of this process. And of course this process, we entitled it as telling it to the church. Tell it to the church. And we noted that the process has been progressively larger. First, there is an offense. You go to the one person, it's private. You don't tell anybody else. You don't go to somebody else and say, you know, I've been offended by so-and-so and this is what he did. Now you're gossiping. You go to that person and you talk to them directly. And it's between you and them. They will not repent. Now you take two or three witnesses who will establish every word that is said that will help in counseling, in communicating, in seeking to have a willingness to reconcile one with another. If they will not hear, then it is to take it to the church. And now we've got more people involved. You got the two people in particular, if it's just two, you've got and have added three more people. That's five. Now you add to that the church. If you got elders, you're going to have at least two to three elders or four elders. It could be five elders. You got 10 people. This thing is spreading like wildfire. And you still aren't taking that to anybody else. If you go public with it, you're going to be dealt with in public. Because 
If you meet with the elders and say, oh, you know what? Now that you've said what you've said, now I understand how I have sinned. And I will ask for forgiveness. And I will seek reconciliation with my brother. And it's done. That's it. It goes nowhere. But if you lie and you deceive and you mislead, when you've already confessed you've done something wrong or you have said that you have not done it and you deny it, it does not matter. There's a point in which the church is going to come forward and say, we got a problem, we can't get it reconciled. This person, this individual, these individuals are coming under the discipline of the church. They're forbidden to take the Lord's Supper. Their membership is suspended until they repent of their sins. And if they will not listen, and if they cut off the communication, or if they want to make a big issue out of it and think that somehow they've got it right, take it to the presbytery. And if you don't like that, take it to the General Assembly. But in the end, if you're found guilty, you will be called a non-believer, a non-Christian. You're a liar, in essence. You said you were a Christian and you will not do what God's word commands of you. The Spirit of God does not dwell in you. If he did, he would reconcile your heart to the word and then to the body of Christ. And so it is we move forward. And we have put this emphasis on, look, we're willing to listen. But when you're no longer willing to witness, witness or, excuse me, listen, not a failure to understand. It's easy enough, correct it. Explain it. Didn't get it, explain it again. Now there comes a time when, you know, they're playing a game and they go, yeah, I still don't get it. Well, we've only told you a thousand times. When they're willing, unwilling to listen, they've cut it off. You can talk to your, as it is, proverbially blue in the face. <clears throat> they don't care. Then you're going to have to take it a step further. Now, that's important. So we have established that principle last Lord's Day. I want to pick up where we had left off. And we're talking about the principle that the elders will call, the pastors and the ruling elders will call for a trial. They're going to counsel you. They're going to confront you with the problem. They're going to discuss it with you. 
They're going to show you where the violation is in the word of God. And then they're going to have to begin to take actions. And ultimately, they're going to have to say, if you will not repent, you're simply not a believer. Who wants to say that? And you know, people say, well, how do you know whether I'm a believer or not? You can't read my heart. Of course not. Only God can read a heart. But God didn't tell me to do church discipline on reading your heart or your mind. We're not thought police. You know what we are? We're action police. We look at your actions. That's what he told us. Judge by the actions. Look at the fruit. That which you are producing. You said you're an apple tree. You got peaches growing on it. You got a problem. You're comparing apples to peaches. I got peaches, but you're an apple tree. You said you were this, but you're giving the fruit of this. That's what we have to judge by. And he assures us in the word that if you're really an apple tree, you're going to produce apples. Oh, you might not produce really good apples. I used to have an apple tree in the house that I grew up in in Ohio. It was the worst apple tree that I think I've ever seen in my life. It was old, which may have contributed to that. But you couldn't eat the apples. They were supposed to be some kind of a red-like delicious apple. Nah. They were good for only one thing, putting them on the end of a sharp stick and throwing them over to the house out into the middle of the street trying to hit cars. Because you couldn't eat them. So it was bad fruit and eventually became no fruit and then it was hewed down and cast into a fire and burned. But lo and behold, wouldn't we be surprised if we thought we had an apple tree? We paid for an apple tree. We planted the apple tree. And when it finally got to that stage of being able to bear fruit, we got grapes, we got peaches, we got oranges. But we didn't get apples. It'd be kind of a shock, wouldn't it? You say you're a Christian. Where is your works? Where's your fruit of the Spirit? Show me your faith without works, without fruit. And I'll show you my faith by my works, by my fruit. Now, who would you believe? Imagine if you would. <clears throat> you want to build a home. Somebody comes along and says, I can build your home. And they just, they tell you everything about it, but you, you know what? They're driving in a little Volkswagen. It's not even hardly running right. You see no tools. 
You see no credentials that says they're licensed to build, construct, or anything else. And they've never built a house that they can show you. He says, I can build that house for $150,000. And you go, wow, that's a good deal. Because the guy who has built houses here in town, who drives around in trucks that have all kinds of tools, said it's going to cost us $200,000 to build the home. Who are you going to give the $150,000 or $200,000 to? It's the same thing as you go in and say you're a farmer. Maybe you've never been a farmer, but let's say you bought a farm. Now, I think Jason and I think JP would look good in farmer clothing out riding tractors and planting chickens. Just remember to plant them straight, plant them four feet deep, and see if they grow. But anyway, can you imagine if they said, we're going to go down to the agriculture office and talk to a guy about growing corn. And you go down there, and a guy's in the office, and yeah, he did go to school for agriculture. He's got a bachelor's degree in it. Are you a farmer? Oh, no, I don't farm, but I studied farming. Well, how do you grow corn? He says, well, this is the way you grow corn. And he goes through the standard repeat of what he learned. And then a farmer comes in beside him, and he's got an ear of corn that's a foot and a half long. And it's ripe and delicious and sweet. Whose advice do you want to grow corn? The guy who's never grown it, but says he knows how to do it, versus the guy that has an ear and a half, an ear of corn a foot and a half long that is absolutely beautiful and delicious. You see, that's the problem with Christianity. People... Get mad. Who are you to question me? I, it's what God said I got to do. And all I can do is judge your works. That's all I can do. I can't do anything else. Works. That's your whole story right there. Your fruit. Not your mouth. Anybody can run their mouth. Show me your works. Show me the fruit. Don't tell me about it. Show it to me. And that's where we all struggle. We can all talk a good game. Well, I mean, even if you at least study enough to talk a good game. But it's another thing to walk a good game. So it is, we have this duty and responsibility. In the Old Testament, God would summon and speak to the elders, who in turn would communicate his message to the congregation. They would bring the message of God to the people. When you have church discipline, it's going to eventually have to come out before the people. 
You got people in sin. You got people that you need to warn the others about that could drag them into the same sin. And let me tell you something. You find people in sin, they're going to recruit for their side. Because somehow they think, if I get enough people that support me, God won't judge me. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. If you violate the word of God, you're going to get judged. I don't care how many people support you. It's not a contest of who will support you. It's walking by the command of God. Anyway, Exodus 3, verses 15 to 16, you'll see here. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, and the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together, and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, The God of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. When there is a time to gather the elders, God calls them together. The elders gather and then they are sent to go to the people of Israel and to tell them to the church in essence and tell them, the message of God. When elders tell the church, they must be sure that only the members are informed. You don't put it out in public. Hey, next Sunday, can you just see that in the newspaper? Next Sunday at Christ Presbyterian Church, we've got so-and-so who's going to be disciplined. You need to come and hear all the dirty details of it. We don't do that. We never do that. There's several ways to do this and do it properly. The meeting has got to be closed one way or another. And what the elders have to determine is that they ensure everything is being carried out in decency and in good order. First, the elders should officially deal with the sinning brother or sister. And secondly, if the elders are unsuccessful, the entire congregation does as Scripture requires in dealing with those sinners. They too are to take up their duty and responsibility to the sin. The reason for this division is this. There is an indication that the leadership first attempts to bring about the repentance necessary for reconciliation. Then, if unsuccessful, will will turn over the individual to the entire congregation. It's just not the church elders 
who are required to deal with these people in a daily walk of life. It's the whole church. To ensure the church does not get... If you had cancer, do you want somebody to help get your cancer cut out or do you want to spread it among everybody? This is a question. When you got cancer, you want it cut out quickly so it doesn't kill the body. Because the longer it stays, assuredly it's going to spread. And so it is, the elders have got to ensure that the congregation knows. But it does it in one of two ways. It either does it at a church meeting in which the church is called together and nobody's there visiting. Two, if there are visitors, then there needs to be a special call meeting in which visitors are not allowed. So the church may conduct its business. It deals with the church. It needs to be told. But it doesn't need to be told to those outside of that church. The only thing different is in the history of the church, it was agreed upon. That when an action is taken that somebody has been put under discipline and has been excommunicated, that you contact other churches so they don't let that cancer into their body and let it fester and let sin rise up among them. It's only right. It is only right. Paul indicates this in 2 Thessalonians 3.14. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Well, I thought that guy was a member of your church and he was a friend. What's wrong? Uh, he, 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 he doesn't want to be a friend. Why? Well, they accused me of sin, and they've all agreed that I'm in sin and I won't repent of it. I'm not convinced. So I was excommunicated, and as a result, the church has said, we will not keep company with you. Does that mean we're mean to them? No. Are we going to go take a stick down and beat them? You'd like to, but you can't do it. You can't shoot them. You can't hang them. You can't burn them out of their house. You can't put a a cross in the front yard and burn it. No. All you've done is said to the people of the church, look, how can you fellowship with somebody who's living in sin? You're encouraging them. There's no consequence to my sin. Yes, there is. Scripture says it. What are you going to do with what Paul says here? I didn't say it. Under inspiration of the Spirit, Paul said it. Don't keep company with them. Does that mean you can't say hi to them or be kind? 
Yeah, you, you've got to be a Christian. You've got to keep the law of God toward him. You can't cheat him. You can't steal. You can't lie to him. You can't violate them by violating the law of God against them. You've always got to act like a Christian. That's our responsibility to keep up our end of the covenant duties that we have as members of the church of Jesus Christ. So here the congregation gets involved after the elders have done everything they can do to work with this individual and get them to repent. The congregation is what? They're seeking to bring reconciliation by their actions as commanded from the Holy Scripture. Now, there are many questions related to this fourth step. When the elders tell the congregation about the case, they do so for a reason. The number of persons who know of the case has increased, as I said, with each step. If the sinning brother or sister does not heed the witness of step three, he must be brought to the entire body because he's living in his sin in that body. Via the elders are the ones who are working with him and they've said, this is it, he won't listen. We got to deal with him. I'll guarantee you, you tell him, we show up next week, we're gonna stand you up in front of the body and go, you see this guy? It's living in sin. Here's the sin. Let's say the sin's adultery. Here's the sin, and he won't repent of it. And he's destroying his marriage. We cannot keep company with him. He's not considered a believer until he comes to full repentance. Now, there's the beauty of it. We don't cast them off forever. While they're living in this sin, while they're unrepentant, we don't keep company with them. But when they repent and when they come back, we resume our fellowship and love with them and kindness. Now, we're always kind, but I'm saying now we can do it in a more personable reconciled way one with another. So, excommunication is not the end of the world, but it is the hardest thing we can say in dealing with them to get them to realize, I'm in sin. My soul is in danger of hell. I must repent. Don't you and I want Everybody in our congregation to go to heaven? To do that, they've got to be living a life that at least demonstrates their willingness to kill sin, to repent of it, and to put on the righteousness of Christ. Walk in the law of God by the power of the Spirit. If we don't rebuke them for this, 
They'll go on in their sin. And you know what happens if they die in their sin? They don't go to heaven. They go to hell. And you don't think in the day of judgment God is going to look at you and say, weren't you told not to keep company with them? How is it you still were their best buddy? I'd go to movies with them. We'd go out to eat with them. We'd go, I told you, no. If they really want to be with you, they need to be walking in Christ. Not perfect. They're never going to be perfect. If we could kill them, we could make them perfect. But you can't do that. We only have one option. We take them to the church and say, this person will not live as a believer. Therefore, we are declaring him an unbeliever until he repents. But if he repents, and oh, we want him to come to church, we want him to hear the word, we want him to repent, we will embrace him with the love of a brother as a member of the church of Jesus Christ. It's not over. It's not over like the civil magistrate, that other magistrate that we have that God created. You have the ecclesiastical magistrate, now the civil magistrate. Now when he takes an action, it's final, especially if it's the death penalty. We can't go that far. All we're doing is proclaiming spiritual death reigns in this person. Literally, no repentance. No reconciliation. Thus, when you have a person that's living in this kind of sin, you've got to bring him before the members of the church. They need to confront him. They need to have a unified front. How dare you live in sin before our Savior? And claim to be redeemed by his blood. Do you realize how obnoxious that is? And how much of a front that ought to be to us? Doesn't bother you? Bothers me. I don't want to be mean to him. I'm not going to be mean to him. If I see him on the street, I'm not going to walk across the street so I don't have to say anything to him. I'm going to say hi. How you doing? Man, I wish you could repent and return back to the church. I'd love to fellowship with you. We had such a good time. But I can't till you repent. My world is taken up with Christ and with his bride. And if you don't want to be with Christ and his bride, I don't want to be with you. I can't. But if you repent and come back, our relationship will be restored. Isn't that what you want? The congregation is told this so that it has the opportunity to help a so-called professed brother to actually come back to repentance by doing what the scripture requires. 
Not say, you know, everything's like it was. You're just not church. No, regarding the congregation, it is to be told. The scriptures thus indicate three things to us. That a brother or a sister who is in sin is under discipline for that particular reason. This is a non-negotiable thing. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 And if anyone does not obey our word or epistle, know that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. He means that we are to clearly identify the offender among the congregants of the church. There should be no doubt who the sinning brother or sister actually is. The church need not know all the details of the offense. That's not required. But it must be told the nature of the sin. He's in adultery. He won't repent. He's destroying his home. It's going to cause real conflict in the church. And how many of you wives want your husbands around a man who's running around with a 20-year-old woman and he's 60 years old. Is that what you want? Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure most of the wives would say no. I don't want him around. That would be a bad influence. My husband could say, you know what, I can commit adultery too and nothing changes at church. Think about it. And if you don't tell them, how are you going to confront them? How are you going to confront them in a meaningful way? I mean, you need to lay it down to them. I'm sorry. I know we used to do a lot of things. I used to do a lot, you know, when it's family, and I'll get to this eventually, because family, there's, it makes it a very hard relationship. You may be married to someone who commits adultery. What are you going to do? You, you're not gonna, if you don't divorce them, if you stay with them, and you're trying to reconcile those things, you can't give in to those things. You've got to be working at it, and you need the support. Not just people going up saying, I'll pray for you, but you know what, your husband's my best friend. You know, I can't, I can't really hold this against him. No. I'm going to support you not only in word, but in deed. I'm not going to have any company with him. Not until he makes it right. The congregation may no longer fellowship with him. Because he is a non-repentant brother. He can't be treated as nothing is wrong. The church is told, don't mix or mingle with him. 
2 Thessalonians 3.14. We've just seen it. How about 1 Corinthians 5.9? Withdraw from him. How about 2 Thessalonians 3.6? The word withdraw means stand aloof, keep away from, and don't eat with him. 1 Corinthians 5.11. Don't even eat with him. Why? The most fellowship you have is around food. These are the commands. Why? That they know that the church is unified and is confronting them in unity together. As long as you live this way, you're not a part of us. And we will not participate with you. And they say this. The congregation must recall, regard the so-called brother of a sister whose status is in doubt. That is to say, they profess one thing, but in reality, they're not what they profess. Suffice for us to say, to withdraw means that if... A calls B and suggests playing a round of golf. B replies, Hey, buddy, you're under discipline and have not repented. I'd rather spend the time together discussing the problem so that we can go golfing together. So that we can go to the movies together. So that we can go out and have a good time together. So that we can go out and eat together. So that we can spend time together. Not to eat means two things. First, that normal fellowship is broken. That's what it means. Second, that the offending member is forbidden to partake of the Lord's Supper because it represents communion, fellowship with Christ and with the body. The refusal to fellowship is the point at which excommunication takes place because the declaration is clear. This person is not a believer. What? Fellowship does darkness have with light, the scripture asks. And if you think God's got it wrong, man, you need to start asking the question, am I right with God? Because I don't think you're smart enough to tell God how to write the book. The forbidding of one to take holy communion is the literal meaning of that word. It is not equated with what happens in removal, but prior to removal at the principal stage of formal discipline. Such and such, we're dealing with them. We can't get them to repent. We're continuing to deal, but we're now forbidding them to eat 
of the table. And you need to know as a cautionary note, there is a sin problem we're involved with that we're dealing with. And you need to unite with us. You need to become a part of the counseling solution to their sin. That they be reconciled to the body of Christ and with our Lord. Therefore, each member of the congregation must counsel him. Galatians 6, 1 through 2, to repent. You who are spirit, you literally who have from the Greek, you have the spirit. Go. Demand repentance. It means that we need to be very forthright. Discipline is difficult to do, people. Personally, I hate it. It's so confrontational. But you know what? My boss said, you got to do it. I don't get a choice. I go to those that I have submitted myself to in the ministry, and they say the same thing. Hey, the book says you got to do it. You got to do what God said to do. You got to do it. And we've even given you a process from the Word and in our own process of our book at your order on how to do it and do it right. How to prepare it, present it, put it together. It's your job. It requires care, it requires courage. It requires fortitude, not just of the elders, but of you, the people. It must not be done in a sloppy manner. It must not be done with malice or hatred in your heart. Oh, we can hate what they've been doing, but our goal is to get them to stop it. Come back. Repent. Live. Christian life they say they've been called to live. Walk in the truth of God's word. It must be carried on with the knowledge and assurance that what is being done is right, proper in the sight of God and for his glory and for his honor. That's what this is all about. That's all we're trying to do. We're simply trying to do one thing. Church is trying to make sure that we all together are going to the same kingdom after death. The kingdom of Christ. Our eternal home, heaven. Until he comes again and brings us with him. But that we will be among that number. There's an old song years ago written, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? That's really what we're trying to stop, the circle from being broken. We want unity. We want love. We have care. Man, if, if you didn't care and you don't care about people, I'm not sure what you're doing in the church. 
We're here because we're called to hear the word. We're called to learn and to live a certain lifestyle. We're here to care for one another. We're all involved. We're all called to do the same work together. But for some reason, there are always those who didn't want to do it. No. No, I'll just do it my way. No, you won't. Because in the end, God will extract his wrath upon you as much as he will for the sinner if you don't do your job. He expects you to help reconcile him. Counsel him. Confront him. It takes courage. It takes fortitude. But you got to do it. But you don't have to be mean. You don't have to be... Does it mean that if somebody's shooting him across the street and chasing him with a gun and he runs to your house and says, please let me in, somebody's trying to kill me, that you say, hey, repent first and then I'll let you in. No, you let him in. You practice the law of God. You protect his life. There are many avenues that we would be able to be a part of what he's doing, but we're not his friend right now. Not in that communal fellowship way. Because I'll guarantee you that if he doesn't repent, you're going to find the circle was unbroken when you get to heaven in our community because some would not follow the word of God. And that's all it's about. It's not a, not really a big deal, is it? You know, all we're trying to do is get reconciliation. You would think we're getting ready to take a gun out and kill him. And you know, when people are caught in sin, how you know it? They get mad and they blab it to everybody else. And they go and tell them. And you know what? If the people listening to them really understood, they'd go, you know, you got a problem and you need to go take care of this problem. You don't need to come here and tell me about it. I don't want to hear about it. You're gossiping. You go and take care of your problem with the people you've created the problem with. The elders don't get together on Monday night and go, hey, let's get all the other elders in and let's talk to them all over Lakeland. Oh, as far as that's concerned, let's bring in the Tampa elders and let's bring in the Orlando elders and let's tell them what a rotten guy this guy is or what a rotten girl this person is. We don't have the right to do that. And they have no right to go do that either. Don't take long to figure out who's in sin. Just ask, how many people have you told since this started? Because the people that are unjust are always looking for the opportunity to be justified by somebody saying, eh, I don't know, I don't think it's a big of a deal. 
I don't know if we'd deal with it that way. Ah, it's okay, don't worry about it. That's what they want. Ah. They put their stamp of approval upon my actions. Even if the word of God says don't do it, they've said I can't, and they live in the joy of being in sin. And God help those that will listen to him. Because he's going to judge them. He's going to tear them up. Because they're partaking of their sins. That's why we don't do it. To fellowship with him is to partake of the sin with him. You're saying it's okay. And it's never okay for us to say that. Think about these things. These are vital. I'd rather go to a church that I know loves me than a church that doesn't care what I do. Because that's not love. Maybe Hollywood's version of it. Maybe a dog's version, unconditional love. Of course, a dog doesn't sin. I mean, he may do what you don't want him to do, but he can't sin because he don't have a free will. He don't have a will to make a choice. He can give unconditional love. But we do not have unconditional love. Our fellowship, our love, is based around the work of Christ and our fellowship with him, our communion with him. And our communion one with another. You must. You must. Help us. To call sinners to repentance. It isn't mean. It's a cry for them to stop sinning. And to act like a Christian. That's all it is. Shall we pray?